Okay, so I'm a little nervous, but I will give this my best shot. Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Vicki, and I am an adult child of an alcoholic. I'd like to welcome you to the ACA uh, speaker portion of the Ocean Shores Jamboree, um, An Age of Miracles. I stand before you a miracle, and as I said, I am an adult child of an alcoholic. I am also a recovering alcoholic with 24 years of sustained sobriety, and I am the mother of adult children of, of alcoholics. Um, I'm grateful to be in recovery because I know that I have the ability to stop the transmission of my disease uh, to the future generations. I'm honored to be here this afternoon to share a little bit of my story, what it was like, and my recovery, what happened, and what, is, what it is like now, the miracle. My mother was 18 years old when I was born. I was her fourth child. I had three older sisters, three, two, and one. Four years later, my twin brothers were born, and a year after that, my baby brother was born. I was the exact middle child, the baby girl, and the oldest boy. Even without dysfunction, I was doomed. My mother was the daughter of two alcoholics. They were migrant farm workers. I grew up hearing my father call her white trash and a fruit tramp. My father was considered an unskilled worker. He was full-blooded Mexican, and my mother called him a filthy wetback. My mother was codependent, narcissistic, para-alcoholic. My father was an alcoholic, a chronic gambler, a womanizer, and a wife-beating, wife-beater and a pedophile. They were both multi-generational children of trauma. Growing up, I loved my parents. All the abuse and the neglect and the fighting and the chaos and the drama took a back seat to my love and dependence on these two injured souls. I grew up in a war zone where we were all just trying to survive and stay out of the line of fire. Both of my parents were hospitalized for mental illness, and so abandonment and parents leaving or not being present was part of my normal. I'd just like to say my father was never really present. He was, uh, he was always gone, doing something. And, um, and his abuse was kind of the ultimate abandonment for me. So my most significant abandonment, the first most significant abandonment I can remember, involves my mother. And it was when I, was, I went to tell her uh, about my father's abuse. Well, she had already heard that story twice before, three times before that I know of with my older sister and two of my cousins. And so when I came to tell her, she pushed me away and she covered her ears. I was five years old. And I knew, or I should have known, that I didn't really have parents. I was a pawn in their sick, tragic lives. As a child, when the pain got too big and the chaos got too, too big to hold or process, I would beat myself in the head with my fists. I'd beat my head against walls, against the ground, against tree trunks, anything hard. I just needed to be able to identify the pain. I didn't have the words for the internal pain, but the external pain I could identify. My parents were too involved in their own pain to address my pain 
or my siblings' pain. Even as, adult, as an adult, it's hard for me to identify the pain that drove me to self-harm. Was it the constant fighting, the yelling, the drinking, the threatening? Was it the inappropriateness of my father's attention or the resentment towards me from my mother for that attention? Was it living with six other siblings who were experiencing their own form of hell and transmitting that pain back and forth to each other? Or was it all of it? I was definitely the lost child, sad, in pain, and without a voice. As I, as I matured into adolescence, the message I heard from my mother was that I, would, I was and would never be as smart as my, or as pretty or as popular as my older sisters. The message I got from my dad as I aged out of his preference was that I wasn't wanted, I wasn't a boy, and I was dispensable. In my teenage years, I took self-harm to a new level. I thought the only way out of my pain, my emotional pain, was suicide. My first attempt was an overdose of over-the-counter diet pills. And I tell you, I can still remember how sick I was from taking all those pills. My mother sent me to Aberdeen, of all places, um, to stay with my great aunt and uncle for a few months. And when I came home, the second attempt was much better thought out. I took prescription medication this time. And uh, I know now that I didn't want to die then, but then I told myself I didn't want to die alone. So I called my Alateen sponsor, who called 911, and I was rushed to the hospital, and I had my stomach pumped. My mother left my father after that because the psychiatrist had told her that successful suicides were rarely a first attempt and um, that if nothing changed, I would be eventually successful. So my mom was an untreated for the effects of her childhood trauma. She was a pair of alcoholic, and she was addicted to drama and excitement. So when she decided to leave my dad, she drove a hatchback Vega. I don't know if any of you guys know what that looks like, but I can't even, I was trying to think of, okay, what car would compare to a hatchback Vega? I just, there, nothing came to my mind, but that's what my mother drove. And she picked me up from school, and then we went and got my three brothers who were like 13, 12 or 13 and 11, you know, somewhere in there. They were big kids, and we all, you know, crammed ourselves into that Vega, and then she drove us to the house and gave us 15 minutes to get everything we could get that would fit in that hatchback for five people to start our new lives. It um, was not much of a uh, recipe for success, but it was certainly loaded with drama. I was heavily medicated, um, but I had enough credits to graduate, so I never went back to school. I was so, so, so depressed. My mother had moved us from Central California to Aberdeen, Washington. I could barely function. My mother instantly became involved with her current husband, who, as it turned out, shared some of the same issues as my father. I don't have a lot of clear memories about that time, but my mom sent me to stay with her alcoholic aunt who lived at the beach. I met a chronic alcoholic uh, who was twice my age, and of course I married him. We had two children. I was 18 years old, an adult child married to an alcoholic, giving birth to the next trauma-affected generation. That marriage lasted four years. After I left my husband, I had to get a job, 
And don't ask me how I managed to do it, but I managed to talk my way into being the activities director for a nursing home. I don't know how I managed that. Um, I also took a job at Godfather's Pizza where I was eventually promoted to manager. My parents taught us the value of hard work. We worked in the family-owned business and in the fields from the time, well, since I was five years old, so I'm, I'm assuming that was the magic aid that we got to go with our mother to work in the fields. Um, I remember my first job was she was cutting grapes to make, and they make sun-dried raisins. They actually do that in the sun. And so they laid down these, these big sheets of paper, and you put a frame, and my mom would cut grapes, and she'd pour it onto the thing, this thing, this piece of paper. And my job was to spread it all out and pick the leaves out. And I was five years old. We really, we knew how to work. Um, let's see. I changed uh, husbands way more than I ever changed jobs. So I remarried in 1983, not because I was in love, but because I needed someone to love me. I had never learned to love myself. In 1985, I had my third child, Rodney. And he was pivotal in my development for a couple of reasons. Uh, he only lived two months and eight days. And his official cause of death was sudden infant death syndrome. But I was getting ready to work for work, and I bent down to kiss him goodbye, and he was turning blue. So I grabbed him up, screaming through the house, and my fellow traveler, my sister, was there. And she started CPR on him. And um, they rushed him to the hospital, and they did, don't ask me what this means, but they did a cut down. I just, it's, it's embezzled, in, in, it's in my brain. I can't forget that. I don't know what it means. And um, they rushed him to Mary Bridge hospital and he was in intensive care you know he, he was actually brain dead already but medically legally they had to prove that so he was in intensive care for for two two days I want to tell you that as a young adult with so much dysfunction my siblings were there for me I remember the night before they were going to disconnect him from life support all of my siblings came and I'll talk more about that later but I say Rodney was significant, not just because he was my son and I loved him, but because that was the second abandonment that I, I got from my mom. We were groomed to take care of mom. You know, we were, she was only 14 when she started having kids, and so we were supposed to take care of her. And in her grief, she told me that she was in more pain than me because she lost a grandchild and watched was watching her, her daughter suffer. And she wanted me to take care of her grief while I was grieving for my son. And I had to tell her, I can't do this. I, I can't be there for you. I was alone in my grief. The other reason it's so significant is because my drinking accelerated after I lost my, mm -hmm. my, my son. My second marriage fell apart. Of course, there was some trauma in the third decade of my life uh, involving my mom and her current husband. He um, had molested three of the young girls in our family. The first one was my cousin who had come to live with my mother. And when she came forward, my mother told us that she was lying and she sent um, her niece away. Uh, the second accusation came from my niece uh, the daughter of the scapegoat in our family. And again, my mother told us she was lying, that my sister had made it up. And I turned my back on my sister. 
for, for doing that. The third time was my baby brother, and it was his youngest daughter, and it was, you couldn't deny it, it happened. It happened at the family um, camp, camp out. It, there was too many specifics. And by that time, my mom had moved to California. And so once again, we gathered, the, this, the siblings, to figure out how can we take care of mom? What are we gonna do about mom? You know, we, she was in college at that point. And so we were like, okay, how much money can we contribute, you know, out of our own budget so that she can continue going to school? And where will she live? It, it never dawned on us that she would choose her husband over her children and her grandchildren. But that's what she did. And for me, that was the final abandonment. I'd like to say, I would like to get back to the, the issue of the siblings. At the time that my mother chose to stay with her, the abuser, we gathered once again as siblings, and this is our God shot. One of us was having some counseling, and it was a counselor that specialized in childhood trauma. And so we gathered at my brother's house, and we had this counselor facilitate this meeting between the siblings. And she gave us the grace to define for ourselves what our relationships with our parents would look like, and irrespective of our relationship with each other. So we never lost that relationship. And of the, of the seven siblings, some of us had contact with my mother, some of us had contact with my father, some of us had contact with both, and some of us had contact with neither. But we never lost each other. I spent my child rearing years as a codependent, uh, para-alcoholic, and then an alcoholic, and then finally a sober alcoholic without emotional sobriety. I had not faced my feelings of shame or my fear of abandonment, and I felt inherently unlovable. I went from dysfunctional relationship to dysfunctional relationship looking for someone to love me and make me whole. And even when I stumbled into a somewhat healthy relationship, I would create chaos and pain to feel comfortable in my environment. I wasted the first half of my life looking for someone to love me when the person I needed was in the mirror the whole time. I missed so much because I was chasing an illusion. I'm not saying I didn't have a good life. I had a good life. I'm saying that I was never able to embrace or celebrate the joy and happiness in my life. I always felt like a lost, scared five-year-old who was never good enough or adequate. No, no matter how many promotions I got, no matter how many events I hosted, no matter how many awards I won, I was always sure that anything that was working in my life wasn't real. My life wasn't real, I wasn't real, and I raised my children under that perception, my poor children. I don't suppose anyone in this room would be surprised to know that my children struggle with addiction like their parents. I won't tell you their story because it's not my story to tell. But I do need to share where our stories intercept, and that is when I came into ACA. My ACA bottom was when my son relapsed after five years of sobriety, and he cut me out of his life and the life of my grandchildren. So I like to say my son and I always had a close relationship, and I realize now that that's a, as close as a uh, an untreated ACA parent and an addict can have, but, you know, we did have a close relationship. 
And so when he relapsed and cut me out of his life, I was devastated. The grief and loss was too much. I sobbed and I sobbed. I, I couldn't breathe. I could barely function. Even with 15 years of sobriety, nothing made sense. I was working my AA program to the best of my ability. I was attending AA meetings, working with a sponsor, doing service work. But when I was cut off from my grandchildren and my son, I could not face life on life's terms. In 1956, Bill W. predicted a new fellowship would someday use the 12th step and a caring community to heal long-buried psychic damage. ACA is that fellowship. I could not piece my life back together. I was so enmeshed with my son's experience, I couldn't discern where he ended and I began. I was so engulfed in the pain, everyone's pain, that I couldn't be of service to anyone, including myself. Luckily, that's when I found ACA. I needed to step out of the chaos and turn the situation over to God and get back to living my life one day at a time. I needed to separate the pain I was in, the pain my son was in, and the pain my grandchildren were in, and the pain from my traumatic childhood. So about that same time, my AA sponsor told me that we were starting a new group at the, Ocean, at the North Beach Alano Club, and it was going to be an ACA group, and I was going to chair it. And I did what any good sponsee would do when your sponsor tells you to do something. I did it. Um, from the first time I read the 14 traits of an adult, adult child, I knew I was home. Throughout my physical recovery from alcoholism, my life did change. I was amazed before I was halfway through. But I never, I've never been comfortable in my own skin. I had physical sobriety, but I did not have emotional sobriety sobriety. The ACA serenity prayer says, God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know that one is me. Emotional sobriety can be defined as maturity, taking responsibility for my action. One of the many things I love about the ACA recovery is their approach to sponsorship. In ACA, we call sponsors fellow travelers. It is often described as peer-to-peer -peer help, seeking answers and solutions together. This allowed me to work through ACA with my AA sponsor because she also attended the ACA meetings. My initial introduction to the ACA program was the Big Book Study, the Big Red Book of Adult Children of Alcoholics. Each page taught me to move more and more about myself. The ACA reading, The Solution, uh, was a blueprint for emotional recovery for me. To become your own loving parent, to express the hurts and fears you've kept inside yourself, to free yourself from the blame and shame, to recover your, the child within, to learn and to love and accept yourself, to begin moving out of isolation, to gradually release the burden of unexpressed grief, to move out of the past, to, to reparent yourself with gentleness, humor, love, and respect, to connect with the higher power, work the steps, attend meetings, connect with fellow travelers, Share your experience, strength, and hope. Restructure your sick thinking one day at a time. Release your parents from responsibility for your actions today. Keep the focus on yourself in the here and now. 
Take responsibility for your own life. Supply your own parenting. This is a spiritual program based on action coming from love. I've been in the ACA program for 10 years. I do not miss meetings. And when I want to miss a meeting, I double my efforts to, uh, to attend that meeting. The greatest tool or lesson that I've learned in ACA is to ask myself, what is my part? The power to, grant, to change the one I can and the wisdom to know that one is me. Sometimes my part is just that I didn't set a boundary. But my power and my recovery and my serenity is always changing the one I can. The big book tells us that emotional intoxication can be characterized by obsession and unhealthy dependence. Emotional sobriety involves a change in relationships. We measure emotional sobriety by the level of honest, mutual respect and acceptability of feeling in our relationships, relationships that are safe and honest. We cultivate emotional sobriety through the 12 steps and through association with other recovering alcoholics. I am eternally grateful for my physical sobriety through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and for the sponsor who continues to guide my physical recovery. She's reminded me over the years that my sobriety is dependent on my ability to cease fighting everyone and everything. In ACA, I have learned to cease fighting myself and my past. For me, I would not be able to have emotional sobriety without physical sobriety. I owe my life to AA and ACA. If you're struggling with your physical sobriety or a chronic relapser, I urge you to try ACA. If you struggle to find the joy and gratitude in your life, try ACA. If you feel uncomfortable in your own skin and you never feel like your life is real, come home. Your ACA family is waiting for you. This is my story and my journey through emotional recovery. There's so much more that can be said, and I can't touch on everything in our brief time together. The solution gives me a roadmap to emotional sobriety, but how we work is individual to all of us. Something that I do every day is I have a prayer meditation that I developed three years into my recovery. I began praying every day a prayer specific to my re recovery. And when the, when the pandemic hit, I found myself sinking into uh, depression, uh, you know, with the social isolation. And uh, I went to an ACA meeting, and one of, the, one, of the, one of my fellow travelers was struggling with the same thing. And she said, I know what to do. I just need to do it. And one of the things she mentioned was a gratitude list. And you know how you go home and you ruminate on what you heard at the meeting? I know what to do. I just need to do it. And I thought, okay, so I need to start writing out my prayer and meditation and then looking at it and then reading it. And then so I do that every day. I write a gratitude list. She suggested it, and it sounded like a good idea. Then I write an affirmation. And then on the other side, I read my daily reflection from Strengthening Our Recovery, and I take you know, footnotes, and I, I cite evidence from the page that I'm reading, and then I relate it back to, to, my, uh, to what I'm working on in my life. I have to get up 30 minutes early every day, and I have to go to work early, but my uh, serenity and my recovery 
is worth it. I'm worth it. I'm worth that 30 minutes. I have a 20-minute drive. I had it down as a commute, but I thought Seattle people might laugh at me if I called it a commute. <laughs> it's not really a commute. Um, so when I drive, I have 20 minutes. I used to listen to NPR, but I was by the time I get to work, I'd be worked up. And, you know, I was not a happy camper. So now I say my prayer and meditation, and I say it for myself first, and then I say it for my inner child, and then I say it for my loving inner parent, and then I say it for my husband and my children and my grandchildren and my elders and my siblings and their families, and I call them out by name, and I say the prayer again. And then I say it for my friends and my recovery community, and I say the prayer again. And then I say it for my coworkers and my students and their families, I say the prayer again. And then I say it for myself again and my inner child again and my loving inner parent. But that's, that's, my, that's part of my recovery. Uh, I also write love letters to myself. I won't read any of them to you, but they're pretty good. <laughs> I'm committed to ACA. I practice these principles in all my affairs. I attend meetings. I work with fellow travelers. I do service work. I listen. I celebrate my aloneness and my communion with my fellow travelers. And when I encounter conflict, and we will, I ask, what is my part? I learn from my mistakes, and I celebrate my growth and recovery. I bask in the happiness that comes from doing the work. I don't just face life on life's turn, terms the grind, or grind through day in and day out. I know there is a solution, and I'm willing to work for it. I feel like I've been talking forever, and I probably have, and I apologize for that. I'm almost done. We're just coming to the final part, and that's what it's like now, and that's the miracle. So... What better way uh, to talk about the miracle of emotional sobriety than reflect it through the promise of his promises of ACA? The ACA promises represent some of the rewards we can expect from ACA and self-love. They represent a balance of action, feeling, and being. This is the material that self-love is made from. That's, on, that's in the Big Red Book, page 442. So promise one, I have discovered my real identity by loving and accepting myself. I have the best relationship with myself than I have ever had. And I, as you know, spent years, have spent years in AA. I did, I've read every self-help book. I did uh, Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I was a facilitator for the Covey Institute. But never before have I been able to love and truly accept myself, strengths and challenges, until I did the work in ACA. AC, the recovery is a lifelong journey, but I stand here before you, a miracle, who can say honestly, I have found my best friend, and I really like her. Promise two, my self-esteem has increased. I give myself approval on a daily basis. And that's where working my program and doing the things that I know will help me to stay in recovery um, comes into play. Uh, showing up for meetings. Our daily reflection tells us that the act of showing up for ourselves gives us a positive view of ourselves. By showing up and participating, we give ourselves appro approval. Each time I do what I said I would do, I esteem myself. The fear of authority figures and the need to people please will leave us has left me, I'm sorry, 
Recovery is a lifelong journey, and while some areas I'm better than others, I continue to work on my recovery program, and I'm amazed that I can turn this around and set boundaries. Where I used to feel inferior and inadequate and try to people please, I am more introspective and I can learn from my feelings. My, my ability to share intimacy has grown inside of me. It would take me days to fully celebrate this promise. The quality of my relationships is amazing. The growth in my relationships is amazing. I was so wounded and had so much unresolved grief and hurt that I could not be truly intimate with myself, let alone anyone else. I spent so much energy trying to keep that stuff suppressed that when I got triggered, I raged. I know now that I was raging at my parents and at the pain, but let me tell you, if you were in the room with me, you didn't know it. I just, I want to, I think I have time, I have a timer up here so I don't go over, but I just want to share a little story about um, the intimacy. One of the gifts that ACA has given me is that besides the quality of my relationship with my children and my siblings and the people I work with and my friends and my fellow travelers is my relationship with my grandchildren. I'm here to bear witness for my grandchildren. And so um, when they struggle, I'm here to tell them it's, 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 not, it's not your imagination, it's real. Uh, I have uh, five grandchildren never been good I've never been a good historian but I think I have five I don't want to count them off right now um, and uh, and I'm close to all of them whoever they are uh, <laughs> but I do I have a granddaughter and they all think they're my favorites and they've confronted me on that but I do have a granddaughter and, and she's little Vicki and little Vicki is 14 years old and she's struggling the pandemic has been very hard on little Vicki and she was a little bit older when uh, her dad relapsed and um, cut me out of their lives. And, you know, he was still using, so he would take them in not safe places and give them to people who didn't want them. And, you know, I don't know what, what their experience was, but I just know that uh, Vicki has struggled a lot this year. And um, she's had to be hospitalized. But you know, we talk all the time, and I can tell her it's not, you're not making this up. It's real. And she, you know, she, my son now is an alcohol counselor, and he's a wonderful father, but you know, he has some amends to make. And uh, it's such a gift that they don't have to question was it real or was it Memorex? You know, did it really happen? Yeah, it happened. And I can bear witness to that. So they were here last weekend, and I was doing some recovery work. I was probably doing my daily reflection and reading my, reading in my book. And it had to have been on making amends because it was just me and the rooster. That's what we call the baby. Her name's Clarissa Rain, but we call her the rooster. I, I think I can blame Midge for that. Um, and I called her, and I said, I, want, I, want, I need to talk to you because I was a rager. So I got into ACA. They were already born. You don't get to come into ACA and be instantly recovered. I'm going to tell you that right now. You have to do the work. So I was still a rager when, they, when I got into it. But I, for some reason, I thought of her, and I, told, I called her in, and I said, Rooster, I need to talk to you. And I know she's been struggling because she's worried about her sister with all the, the 
turmoil was going on around her. And I said, you know, Grandma's not perfect. And uh, I said, and if there's been times in the past, and I stopped and corrected myself, and I said, no, there have been times in the past when I've yelled at you. And I just need you to know that that was never about you. It was about me. And I, you know I go to ACA, and I, you know, I probably rattled on, 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 on. And I'm thinking, because she has her head kind of down, I'm thinking, she's probably thinking, oh my God, Grandma, just shut up already. <laughs> But I went on and on, talked about how, you know, I was sorry and that I, when I know better, I, I do better and that I hope that she had recognized that I don't yell at her anymore. And if she needed a reference, uh, Papa would tell, would tell her that I am getting better. And she looked up. She finally raised her head. And she was, she was 11 years old, and she was crying. And she put her arms around me, and she said, Thank you, Grandma. What a gift. What a gift of intimacy I was able to share with my granddaughter. Okay, moving along. I have faced my abandonment issues and am attracted by strengths and more tolerant of weaknesses. What a blessing to have a strength-based perspective for myself and for others. We face our abandonment with the tools of recovery. We learn to nurture our inner child by understanding the role of our inner loving parents. We make better choices and see that the strengths and weaknesses that we have are an expression of our humanness. I enjoy feeling stable, peaceful, and financially secure. I know, I know I will not pass on my inherited trauma to any further generations. I am stable in the knowledge that I have a program of recovery, a relationship with a higher power, and fellow travelers who see me and hear me. I am peaceful in the knowledge that I am the person I can change. And I am financially secure by the grace of God and by the realization that I don't have to compare myself or my income to anyone. I know how to play and have fun. Okay, not really. Um, <laughs> I'm a work in progress, though. I think yard work and housework is fun. But I'm learning. So sometimes I pretend that my house is like a big dollhouse, a big playhouse, and I'm cleaning, but I'm just playing at that. And um, when I'm going to do yard work, I reframe that and I call it gardening because that sounds so much more fun than doing yard work. Or I say I'm playing in the dirt. And when I take the dogs out, instead of just it being a responsibility, they have to go to the bathroom, right? I try to enjoy that. So I'm learning. And, uh, and when I cook with my grand, I don't like to cook. I never have liked to cook. My, sis my siblings used to tell me to bring the chips for a potluck. And I don't, nobody wanted my cooking. Uh, but when I have a couple of grandchildren that like to cook, but I, these are the gifts of recovery. I'm learning to play and have fun. I choose to love people who can uh, love themselves and are responsible for themselves. So ACA teaches us that as children, and I talked about this earlier, we wanted and needed to love our parents. So we overlooked their dysfunction as a way to make them lovable. As we came to consciousness about our childhood experiences, and did the work in ACA, we begin to love and accept ourselves and are able to love others. So I, st I, st I stumble with this one because I do love people who don't love themselves, you know? But sometimes the most loving thing I can do is to allow those people to be responsible for themselves, and I choose not to love someone at the expense of loving myself. I set healthy boundaries and limits. How many times have you heard we teach people how to treat us? 
I set healthy boundaries by knowing myself and knowing what I need and asking for it. I set healthy boundaries when I am not enmeshed in other people's lives. I set healthy boundaries when I accept responsibilities for my actions and com communicate what actions are not acceptable to me. Fear of failure and success has left me. I intuitively make healthier choices. Okay, well, thank God for the fellow traveler that told me I'm going to go to God all used up because I'm still working on that one. Um, but I do strive to be the be a better version of myself. Um, and I am better at accepting my successes more graciously. I accept praise. And I recognize when I'm self-sabotaging because of the fear of success. I have released my dysfunctional behaviors with the help of my ACA support group. I am so grateful for the ACA program. I am not attached to my perception of reality of knowing what I know now. Because 10 years ago, when, before I started this program, what I thought I knew has nothing to do with the reality of what I know now. And I know in 10 years, I can't imagine what I'm going to know then. With, the higher powers, with my higher power's help, I expect the best and get it. December 15th Daily Reflection reminds us that we are spiritual beings having a human experience, filled with hurdles and hopes, minor fender benders, and colossal blunders. We have many splendid gifts that we've only just begun to discover. We are learning to ask for the best, and we stop placing limits on what that is. Ten years ago, I would have not predicted that I would be a special education teacher held in high esteem by my colleagues. I could not have imagined my capacity for self-love or predicted the quality of my relationships. This miracle is here for all of us, waiting to be cultivated in emotional recovery. I'd like to thank you. Oh, man, I rushed through this, didn't I? Um, I would like to thank you for letting me share my recovery with you this afternoon. And in closing, because I am going to close, I would be honored to share my daily prayer and re reflect meditation with you as a blessing. So here it is. May you be present and safe. May you feel loved and regarded. May you be loving and kind and honest. May you be gentle and generous of heart and soul. May you be healthy spiritually, physically, and emotionally. May you be content, gracious, and grateful. May you be attentive to your responsibilities. May you embrace and celebrate the abundance and happiness in your life. May you live with integrity, joy, gratitude, and grace. May you live your life intentionally and consistently. I love you all, and thank you for my recovery.